Hello and welcome back to another episode of Creedle. We have a pretty quick episode today, at least I'm going to try to make it quick, uh, but I wanted to talk about abortion. This is not a topic that is totally foreign to this podcast. We've talked about it before, but there are some things in the news lately, most particularly the leaked draft opinion that could spell the end of Roe versus Wade uh, and the um, Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione of San Francisco's banning of Nancy Pelosi from Holy Communion, absent uh, her public renouncement of her previously held pro-choice uh, advocacy and her, um, her uh, use of the sacrament of reconciliation or confession. So uh, lots of things to digest here as a Catholic, uh, and I think it's actually helpful to be a few weeks removed from the, the hysteria of the, of the post-leak weeks, if you will. Uh, lots of hysterical reactions, um, mostly from mostly from the pro-abortion side of the aisle, um, and we can talk about a few of those reactions and and why they absolutely missed the mark. But overall, just to recap, uh, a few weeks ago, a presumably a clerk of the Supreme Court leaked a draft opinion authored by Justice Alito, uh, along with four other justices. So this would be a five-four majority of the court. Um, that spells the end of Roe versus Wade. Now, if you are a longtime listener of Creedle, you will remember that last June I had on the show Clark Forsyth, who's also my father-in-law and senior counsel at Americans United for Life. And Clark talked through some of these cases that were coming before the Supreme Court in the current term that could indeed pose some serious challenges for Roe versus Wade. The, the most promising one of those was this Dobbs case, the very one, uh, the very one in question here. But let me read a paragraph from page five of the draft opinion in which Alito is writing and says, we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. Casey refers to Casey versus Planned Parenthood, a 1992 case that further strengthened the Roe regime and created what's called the undue burden standard, uh, basically making it harder to tear down abortion protections. So um, Alito is saying we hold that both Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood must be overruled. He continues, the Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. That provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution, but any such right must be deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. I'm going to pull up the text of the 14th Amendment to make sure I, uh, I quote this correctly. But what, uh, what Alito is talking about here is uh, unenumerated rights. And an unenumerated right is one that is not, not specifically spelled out in the Constitution. Now, in the early days of the Constitution, when uh, the framers added the Bill of Rights, they also added a clause in the Ninth Amendment. And actually, this is what the Ninth Amendment is about. That basically says, hey, if we don't say something is explicitly... Uh, a right of the American of the, of the American people that does not give people, you know, carte blanche authority to remove those rights. Um, rather, uh, we are here trying to make a good list of the ones that really do need to be protected. Um, but you can't use that to say that just because we didn't mention it, it's not protected. So that is that's what that's what an unenumerated right is. It's one that's not particularly uh, specifically mentioned in the Constitution, um, but is a right nonetheless. What Alito is saying is that up until now, the assumption of the jurists who have decided these things, like Roe and Casey, has been that abortion is an unenumerated right. And he's saying that that relies on a very, very, very shaky 
legal foundation, flawed legal reasoning, and is simply not true. So he says no. He does say that uh, the chief defense of those unenumerated rights is the 14th Amendment, and it says, the 14th Amendment, section 1, says, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Uh, so everyone uh, equally falls under the protection of the law, and the government cannot deprive anyone of a right without due process of law. So Alito is saying, in this case, uh, abortion is not an unenumerated right. It is not a right at all, and therefore the Roe and Casey regime must fall. Now, I mentioned uh, my father-in-law, Clark Forsyth, coming on the podcast. You'll be excited to know, maybe not as excited as I was, but still excited, that on page four of the opinion, uh, I think it's page four. I'm double-checking here. Page four. Uh, okay, I don't see it now. I promise you it's here, though. Uh, that uh, my father-in-law's book, Abuse of Discretion, The Inside Story of Roe versus Wade, is cited in the opinion. That's pretty cool to have your work cited in a Supreme Court opinion. So anyway, um, that's pretty neat. And I definitely encourage you to pick up the book, Abuse of Discretion, The Inside Story of Roe versus Wade. It gives you a, a, a lot of background on how shaky the legal reasoning to get to Roe and then to Casey was and is, and raises some serious questions about the, uh, the motivations of the judges, uh, whether or not they were disinterested as, disinterested as judges should be. Uh, it looks at the science surrounding abortion, and it puts to rest some some crazy myths. For example, there is a common conception now, and you know one of the one of the historical responses to this draft opinion leak has been that the U.S. is moving just so far backwards on abortion rights, and that we are just now going going we're we're turning into a Handmaid's Tale state of theocracy. That is completely absurd. People forget, by the way, that in A Handmaid's Tale, uh, Catholic priests are murdered and hung in public, and Catholic churches are burned down. Uh, the Handmaid's Tale cult is not Catholic. They hate Catholics, and they war against Catholics. So uh, to you know, protest at Catholic churches wearing Handmaid's Tale costumes uh, because of Roe versus Wade or the draft opinion uh, misses the mark uh, on many, many levels. But we don't need to, to digress too far in there. But uh, as I was mentioning, people think, you know, we're going, we're going, we're turning into a uh, theocratic handmaid's tale type of environment uh, when they don't realize how, just how out of step with the rest of the modern world the U.S. is on abortion. It's really pretty remarkable. Um, the U.S. is one of four countries in the world to allow abortion for any reason at any point uh, up to birth. And you might think, oh, four countries, it must be the most, uh, the most progressive, right? It's, uh, it's, I don't know, England and France and Germany. No, 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 no. It is Canada. Okay, that's, that's a very progressive company, or country. Canada and North Korea and China. Right? So the, uh, the, the hermit kingdom. Uh, led by someone who claims to be a you know God King uh, Communist Party secretary, and uh, the largest communist country in the world uh, that is committing genocide against the Uyghur people in Xinjiang Province in the Northwest. Those are the countries that are on par with the United States as far as uh, national abortion regime regimes. So it's a complete myth that uh, that we are you know well behind the rest of the world. If anything, this brings us actually closer to where. 
uh, the, the rest of the civilized world um, is. Now, the most civilized thing, of course, would be to do uh, what, what Poland has in place now and several, several other Catholic countries, which is that abortion is just illegal. Um, but that's not where we are, not where we are yet, not quite. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, there's a lot, to, a lot to digest here. I do want to respond to one quick thing. One of the hysterical responses to the draft opinion has been that this must just be the beginning of the end for all of the unenumerated rights that have been protected by the court over the years. So interracial marriage, for example, uh, gay marriage, uh, homosexual acts, uh, going back to Lawrence v. Texas, um, contraception, Griswold v. Connecticut, the, uh, the hysterical cry. And this, this hysterical cry is not just limited to like obscure corners of Twitter or the blogosphere. I mean, the New York Times editorial board wrote a completely absurd op-ed saying that basically interracial marriage could be the next domino to fall and states might outlaw interracial marriage. That's a completely uh, absurd uh, assertion for at least two reasons. One, interracial marriage is supported by the vast, vast majority of Americans all over America, even in uh, the Deep South, where you might think the numbers are lower. We're talking about like mid-90s and higher of, of support for this. Uh, and two, Alito, in this opinion, very explicitly says this opinion does not open up all of these other unenumerated case uh, rights up for discussion or reversal. Abortion is a unique one because it involves the life of another human being. Or if you don't fully agree with that, you can at least acknowledge another potential human being in the womb of its mother. So this is a very unique unenumerated right that has to be handled in a different way than all of the other unenumerated rights, right? Like the right to drive a car. There's no right to drive a car in the constitution, but that right is very, very different from the right to life, the right to actually be alive once you're alive, the right to be born from your mother. So um, Alito takes great pains to delineate his argument from those, uh, from those other issues. And of course, absurdly, so uh, many, um, many on the left see fit to completely ignore that delineation and that distinction and instead to claim that this is just, again, the start of a religious theocracy. We're going to eliminate interracial marriage. We're going to eliminate contraception. Yada, yada, yada. Uh, really pretty sloppy arguments um, all around there. <clears throat> so this, this does matter, though, a lot. This is a very exciting moment in uh, the pro-life, the history of the pro-life movement in America. If I can paraphrase Churchill, I will say that this is not the end. This is not even the beginning of the end, but this is perhaps the end of the beginning. And what I mean by that is what this does now is eliminate the federal protection of abortion. The hard work to come uh, is across 50 states, all of which now need to institute their own protections for the life of the unborn. And that really matters. And that's where, that's where I mean, there's been hard work going on for 50 years and more on all these issues, but now there's, I think, a real opportunity now that Roe is about to fall and Casey with it, there's real opportunity at the state level to implement meaningful change. Now, I wanna be clear on a couple different things here. One, I've never hidden my pro-life convictions uh, and I'm pro-life from womb to tomb as I think everyone should be, certainly as every Catholic should be given our Catholic social teaching. Um, and, and being pro-life uh, obviously does not mean that you are anti-woman. But let's, uh, let's talk about a few things here. One, as Catholics, we don't really have an option to be in favor of abortion. Let me, let me say that stronger. I, I could have stated that more strongly. Catholics do not have an option of being in favor of abortion. 
This is the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I'm going to read right here from page 547, in my copy at least, section 2270, if you're following along online. Human life must be respected and protected absolutely from the moment of conception. From the first moment of his existence, a human being must be recognized as having the rights of a person, among which is the inviolable right of every innocent being to life. Now, there are a couple of Bible verses here quoted, and, uh, and we'll get into that in just a moment. But let me, let me proceed, continue on. Since the first century, the church has affirmed the moral evil of every procured abortion. This teaching has not changed and remains unchangeable. Direct abortion, that is to say, abortion willed either as an end or a means, is gravely contrary to the moral law. Formal cooperation in an abortion, this would be the, you know, the doctor or nurse attending and participating in it, constitutes a grave, it would also be, by the way, the, the mother or father that you know, requests it and goes along with it, constitutes a grave offense. The church attaches the canonical penalty of excommunication to this crime against human life. Quote, a person who procures a completed abortion incurs excommunication, late sententiae, which means by the very commission of the offense and subject to the conditions provided by canon law. The church does not thereby intend to restrict the scope of mercy. Rather, she makes clear the gravity of the crime committed, the irreparable harm done to the innocent who is put to death, as well as to the parents and the whole of society. Moving on to section 2274. Since it must be treated from conception as a person, the embryo must be defended in its integrity, cared for, and healed as far as possible like any other human being. Okay, uh, a lot there to unpack, but uh, the short of it is that the church vigorously defends the uh, full humanity of every preborn life, including from its embryonic stage forward, uh, and that Catholics cannot um, cannot remain Catholic in good standing and participate in, participate in an abortion, nor can they reject this teaching of the Church as something that is uh, that is not to be accepted uh, fully with the assent of faith, or can be um, can be cherry picked, can be disagreed with, um, publicly advocated against, etc. So we get into some um, uh, we can get into some sort of myth busting territory, but let's talk a little bit about a few things we just mentioned. Uh, I mentioned that there are a few Bible verses in the catechism <clears throat> about those. Those Bible verses are not about abortion uh, because the Bible does not uh, mention abortion as such. It's not, it does not mention abortion explicitly. What the Bible does do is affirm the inherent dignity of every human life, which is a uh, obviously a, a core teaching of our Catholic faith. Um, but there's a common misunderstanding that Catholics who oppose abortion do so because uh, of the Bible. This uh, understanding was recently echoed by uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, among others, who think that basically the entire basis of our objection to abortion is because the Bible says abortion is wrong. Uh, that's completely preposterous because, one, the Bible doesn't, again, explicitly say abortion is wrong. There are tons of things from the Bible that we can understand and, and that, that shape and form our understanding of human life, of our understanding of the value of every human life from womb to tomb. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you is what the is what God says in the Psalms. So there are certainly uh, amazing insights from the Bible, and, and we we have good reason for uh, good reason for opposing abortion that are good reasons that are biblically grounded. But the reason that we oppose abortion is because we actually have the science on our side, and we pair that science with our uh, with the divine revelation about the dignity of the human person, and that convinces us that every person. Is worth defending, right? So take for an example, uh, take for example an embryo, right? An embryo is the fusion of an egg from a mother and a sperm cell from the father. 
uh, and this embryo is very tiny, microscopic, but there are three important things about this, and here I'm borrowing from uh, Embryo, A Defense of Human Life by Robert P. George and Christopher Tollefson. Three important things about an embryo. First, the embryo is distinct from any cell of the mother or the father, right? If, uh, if you cut your hair, lying around on the floor of the salon are a bunch of your cells, right? They're hair cells, and those are your cells. So they're distinct from you, you know, physically in, in that they are not attached to you, but they're not distinct, distinct from you genetically. They are, in fact, your cells. Right. Whenever you scratch your scratch your skin, you know, thousands of, of skin cells escape into the air. Those are your cells. They're not distinct from you. Right. They don't they don't deserve the full protection of a human life. But the embryo does. It is not yours and it is not your mates, your spouses. It is distinct from both of those because it is uh, it is it is the result of the unity of your cell and your spouse's cell. OK, so it's distinct. Second, the embryo is human. I remember watching this uh, this like Sunday morning show, or maybe it was just maybe not a Sunday morning, but some talk show appearance by Senator Marco Rubio on, I don't know, I think it was Chris Cuomo or something, uh, and they were arguing about you know uh, pro life legislation, um, and I think it was Cuomo, although I could be wrong, was challenging the good senator on you know why he had sponsored pro life legislation, et cetera, et cetera, and then they started talking about an embryo. And Rubio made the assertion that an embryo was a human life, and the anchor, again, I think it was Cuomo, challenged him on that. No, it's not. That's just your opinion. And you know, Rubio's like, yes, it is. And he said, no, it's not. That's just your opinion. That's not science. That's not human. We, we don't know that. And uh, Rubio responded and said, well, what is it? Is it a rabbit? Is it a plant? Like, it, it's obviously human. It's not anything else. Um, and he's, he's 100% correct. Now, what the anchor was arguing or was contesting is whether or not that cell or that clump of cells, if he's arguing beyond the embryo stage, deserves all the protection of a full human being. Uh, but there is no contention that it is distinctively human, right? If we were to, if we were to, you know, unearth an embryo and a fossil and, and, you know, a fossil could preserve an embryo with a level of detail, we would need to understand this. We could identify, we, we would identify it as a human embryo. It is, it is human in origin. It is human in nature. So it is actually a human cell. Third, and this is probably most important, I think, for the, the reasons that the anchor was, was fighting about with Marco Rubio. Third, the embryo is a complete or whole organism, though it is immature. And let me read to you a quote from this book, page 49. Again, the, the one, Embryo, A Defense of Human Life by uh, Robert George and Christopher Tolleson. The human embryo from conception onward is fully programmed and has the active disposition to use that information to develop herself to the mature stage of a human being and, unless prevented by disease or violence, will actually do so, despite possibly significant variation in environment, parentheses, in the, in the mother's womb, end parentheses. None of the changes that occur to the embryo after fertilization, for as long as she survives, generates a new direction of growth except in the case of twins, which we discussed below. Rather, all of the changes, for example, those involving nutrition and environment, either facilitate or retard the internally directed growth of this determinate and enduring individual. Here then is the bottom line. A human embryo is not something different in kind from a human being, like a rock or a potato or a rhinoceros. A human embryo is a whole living member of the species Homo sapiens in the earliest stage of her natural development. Unless severely damaged or denied or deprived of a suitable environment, an embryonic human being will, by directing her own integral organic functioning, develop herself to the next more mature developmental stage, the fetal stage. All right, so those are the, that's the science behind an embryo. That's the science behind why we think this is worth protecting. One, it is distinct from mother and father, so it's its own thing. It's one of a kind. 
right? And sui generis. Two, uh, it is distinctly human. And three, it is, uh, it is capable of completely developing to a full, fully adult human um, on its own. Uh, on its own, I don't mean that it, it will not rely on sustenance for its mother, et cetera, that it has uh, independence in that way. But on its own, meaning it's sort of genetically self-directed, right? Within that little embryo, are, uh, are all of the DNA uh, maps for how to develop itself and how to mature into a full human. Unlike, for example, a skin cell that has no sort of self-directing capacity or capability. So that is what makes an embryo distinct from you know, any other kind of cell or kind of thing. It is, in fact, a, a full human. Now, of course, here, uh, you know, that, that, that science is very, in fact, that, that is settled science. What I just read to you is settled science. That is not up for debate in any way, shape, or form. What is up for debate, I mean, not to me, but what is debated is whether or not that, that human life de deserves the same protection as any other human life. And this is where, where it gets interesting. Uh, interesting in the sense that I think like where the argument, the, the pro-choice argument really um, shows its colors and starts to break down. I remember having a discussion with a fellow pro-life person a while ago, just just talking about the the way the pro-choice arguments uh, tend to originate. They're, they either tend they they tend um, to arise in sort of like libertarian-oriented solutions where the rights of the individual triumph, and so the rights of the mom uh, actually, even though they conflict with the rights of the baby, the rights of the mom are sort of more and fully developed, and she has the autonomy to assert those rights, and so might makes right. Um, or they uh, end up, they end up sort of taking an arbitrary point at which, at which point a human life becomes a full human life. And so, as an example of that, uh, viability, right? Viability is um, is often cited as uh, as a reasonable point at which a human baby should be protected, right? Viability is at one point a human baby could survive outside of the womb. A number of problems arise with that, right? One of those uh, arises from the question of, you know, whether or not viability is ever something any of us achieve. For example, uh, I am now an adult male, but I'm dependent on uh, a whole bunch of other people for everything that I do. I'm, I'm dependent on the people who deliver my food to the grocery store for the, for the food to be there when I arrive. Uh, earlier in my life, I was dependent on my parents to provide me an education. Uh, you know, very early in my life, I was, parent, I, I was dependent on my mother to feed me and clothe me and change my diapers. So all of us are dependent in varying degrees and in varying ways uh, on others for our existence. This is what my friend Leo Labresco Sargent uh, talks about when she writes about interdependence. So we're all highly interdependent and none of us are ever truly viable, uh, viable beings on our own. But second, this, this uh, maybe will strike even closer to home. If you think about cases where we have profound developmental disabilities in in adults, right? Adults who can not feed themselves. Uh, and I mean, like, not, I don't mean they can't grow the food, you know, they have to have people bring stuff to the grocery store like I do. I can't feed myself in that way, but I'm talking about people who have just profound, um, you know, movement disabilities or psychological cognitive disabilities um, who really rely on full-time caregivers to do, to do everything, right? It is preposterous to assert that those people do not deserve the full protection of the law. There are some people who do that, and those people are, are maniacs, but that is not a mainstream position. Somehow, though, it is a fairly mainstream position to assert that the baby in the womb does not deserve the full protection of the law. 
that at the very least, even if that person that person deserves any protection at all, the protection uh, that we should accord them is less than than that that we should accord the mother. Uh, and so when you compare that to this idea that you know someone who is severely uh, mentally disabled uh, and yet you know age twenty two years old, living with parents, et cetera, that that person should not be protected uh, under the law the same way that his or her parents are. Um, I think the you start to see the sort of moral bankruptcy of the the pro-abortion uh, side. Now moving back to the child in the womb, the other problem with the viability assertion is that viability is a moving standard, right? A hundred years ago, viability was something like thirty-five weeks. Now, viability with our advancing technology is closer to twenty weeks. You know, only halfway through through the pregnancy. Um, now that you know, the viability, the 20 weeks means that the baby's gonna be highly dependent on life support functions outside of the womb and be in the neonatal intensive care unit and all of that. But that's, that baby is still actually could be potentially born at that point in the pregnancy and survive to adulthood. Probably yes, with, with long lasting and permanent um, disabilities, but still survive to adulthood. So we now see, uh, even just in the past three, uh, past hundred years, you know, a 15 week change in the point of viability. It is conceivable uh, that at a certain point we will get to a viability standard of uh, of eight weeks. You know, where a baby could survive in an artificial womb outside of its mother at a point of eight weeks, um, and so the viability standard just doesn't doesn't make sense. Um, uh, other things are arbitrary as well. You know, some people point to to heartbeat. Well, why a heartbeat? You know, some people point to to feeling pain. Well, why feeling pain? Are you just saying that because someone doesn't feel pain, uh, you can do whatever you want to them? Because that seems very problematic to to you know sufferers of various nerve ailments or um, things people who don't feel pain, right? Um, so those standards all just just move uh, very quickly and very frequently and don't make sense uh, as a uh, as a uh, point at which someone becomes a full person the only the only logical uh the only well i I guess i suppose there are two uh logical but one is morally barbaric two logical points for determining when someone becomes deserving of full protection uh, under the law would be birth and that is a barbaric one because it is now with our modern science it is impossible to deny uh, all of these amazing aspects of the baby's humanity in the womb of the mother. But the other logical one is conception, and that is the one that the church has declared since the first century, as I mentioned in the catechism, uh, and that is the one that most accords with the science today, despite the fact that uh, the pro-choice advocates will tell you tell you the opposite. Another thing I want to talk about before we get into this um, Archbishop Cordiglione thing is uh, this idea that, uh, you know, people— from the pro-choice side, if people really, if these people were really pro-life, they would support gun control, common sense gun control. They would support uh, the end of the death penalty. Uh, they would support. You know, they, they would wear masks for crying out loud in the midst of a pandemic. They'd wear masks. They would be in favor of single payer health care, et cetera, et cetera. Now, all, all that's well and good. Uh, you can have that position if you want. I adopt some of those positions that I I don't wear a mask anymore. I've given up on the mask, but I I do uh, endorse the end of the death penalty in the United States. I um. I'm skeptical of single-payer healthcare because I actually think it would hurt uh, overall outcomes, and I think median outcomes would decrease rather than increase. Um, I am for common sense gun control, so just to just to be clear about where I am on on these things. But um, to point out that a pro-lifer has uh, apparently inconsistent policy positions says actually nothing about the truth of a particular claim that they make. Right, so because a pro-lifer 
uh, does not support the end of the death penalty does not automatically mean that that person is wrong in supporting an end to abortion. And I'll give you an analogy that might might uh, help when you're explaining this to, to friends. Let's say you have your, your friend over, right? Uh, and uh, you, you, know, you go to coffee with your friend in the morning, and then that, that night you have your friend over for dinner. And after dinner, you serve your friend a plate of brownies, and you say, here's dessert. I made brownies. And your friend says, oh, no thanks. Uh, I don't eat sugar. You say, that's ridiculous. I had coffee with you this morning, and you ate a donut for breakfast. Of course you eat sugar. Okay, you've just pointed out that 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 friend inconsistently applies a standard, right? That is, uh, you know, a point for you in pointing that out. What you have not done is uh, is refuted the claim that brownies have sugar in them, right? So, yes, brownies have sugar in them. Of course they do. Uh, just because your friend recognizes that in one instance and not, you know, does not recognize that donuts also have sugar in them does not make it incorrect that brownies have sugar in them. So similarly, just because a pro-life uh, person does not uh, think that, um, you know, we that we need a single-payer healthcare system uh, does not mean that they are wrong in saying that abortion is murder. And that's the, the final thing I want to say. Abortion is murder. Uh, people often, you know, I had a state senator come by my house last, uh, I think it was December or January, running for re-election, wanted my vote. And I was going through his policy positions, et cetera, et cetera, pretty like boilerplate, um, you know, left of center, uh, blue politics, municipal and state uh, proposals and um, increased funding for, for schools and for public transit, things like that. Just kind of boilerplate stuff. I was going through nothing highly objectionable. And then I asked him about his platform on abortion. And he had this completely incoherent response that basically said, I personally believe abortion is wrong, but I also believe it is uh, up to a woman and her doctor to decide. That's obviously been, I mean, I, I call that a preposterous position because I think it is, but that's also the mainstream position in America. It's, it's, it's very common for people to say exactly what he said. And then I scratched the surface a little bit on that and basically said, you know, why do you think it's wrong? And he explained to me that he thinks it's wrong because it's the killing of a baby. And then I asked him, uh, why don't you uh, support legislation that would make it illegal to kill a baby? And he said, I don't believe we can legislate morality. And I said, that's ridiculous. We legislate morality all the time. We have laws against robbing banks. We have laws against murder. We have laws against you know running into someone's house and stealing. We have laws against assault. So of course we can legislate morality all the time. We do it. And he said, oh, that's, that's really ethics. And I said, what are you talking about? And so then he made this completely false dichotomy between ethics and morality. And morality was basically a personal conviction that's totally subjective. And ethics is something that's demonstrably known to be wrong. I mean, it just didn't make any sense at all. And if he had thought for more than 30 seconds about it, I think he would have realized that. But, um, but that was a state senator uh, making that point. And um, in, in response, I mean, I challenged him on many of those. But basically, the, the, the response is abortion if abortion is murder, then abortion should be wrong, period, dot. It's, if it's wrong in one instance, it's wrong in all instances because abortion is murder, because we're talking about the taking of an innocent human life, and that should be wrong at all times in all places. Um, so that's why, this, uh, that's why people like me, and probably you if you're listening to this, get so animated about this because it really matters. Uh, there are real outcomes to real people, um, and it is a grave sin to abort a baby. Now we come to the Archbishop Cordelione, Nancy Pelosi thing. And if you want to learn more about this, I encourage you to hear it directly from the Archbishop's mouth on the Gloria Purvis podcast last week. He appeared to do a little kind of Q&A session with Gloria and talk about his, his decision and why he made the decision and what's motivating it. 
And right up front, he said, this has nothing to do with the draft opinion. This has everything to do with Nancy Pelosi persisting in obstinate sin, despite my repeated attempts over the years as her pastor to correct her on this. We've met multiple times. We've talked a lot about this, and I have tried to correct her. I've tried, 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 uh, and she's not listening. So I, I now have to publicly do this to prevent the, uh, the perpetuation of scandal. Uh, scandal. The scandal being that you know a Catholic uh, could see Nancy Pelosi doing that. They see her take communion in their parish, and they think, well, she's a good Catholic and good standing who's allowed to take communion. I can also be pro-choice as well. Archbishop Cordelione is saying, no way, absolutely not, can't do that. Now, uh, there's, I think it was, yeah, Whoopi Goldberg on the View was talking about this. Uh, was talking about Cordelione um, banning Pelosi from communion, and she said, that's not your job, dude. That's literally not your job, uh, and you know, I would just correct Whoopi Goldberg and say that is his job. That's actually uh, the the main part of his job is shepherding his flock and making sure that he takes care of their their souls and gets them to heaven. So, um, Archbishop Cordelione, uh, His Excellency, was emphasizing that this is not a this is not a canonical penalty imposed on Pelosi. And in fact, Canon nine seventeen is a is not in the sort of canonical discipline parts of canon law. Uh, ecclesiastical discipline. It is in the, the the sacramental part of canon law explaining worthiness to receive the Eucharist. And um, he is levying this, this penalty, although it's not a canonical penalty per se, but he's levying this on Pelosi because he cares about her soul and he wants, he does not want her to, to drink her damnation in the Eucharist. Uh, we are told by St. Paul uh, and by the tradition of the church that we are drinking our own damnation if we intentionally receive the Eucharist unworthily, and to receive the Eucharist in a state of mortal sin is to receive it unworthily, and to be perpetually uh, and vociferously advocating against the moral teachings of the church on an issue uh, uh, that is uh, an intrinsic evil, like abortion, is to be in mortal sin. So Nancy Pelosi is in a state of mortal sin, therefore cannot receive the Eucharist without endangering her soul. Uh, and although, of course, being in a state of mortal sin is endangering your soul. But that is why the good archbishop uh, has banned her from communion. Now, uh, the response uh, obviously has been um, from many quarters, both within and without the Catholic Church. Um, but there is this line that the medicine is not the you know reward for the perfect, but the food for the sick. This, there's a variety of forms of this argument. Um, and that is certainly true. That is certainly true. But the argument is misapplied there. Um, because it is the uh, food for the sick, and every one of us who is, has, no, has not yet attained perfection is sick in that way because we're all corrupted by sin. Um, but uh, the Eucharist requires um, intention um, to turn towards Jesus, and if you are in a state of mortal sin, then that is not your intention. Your intention is not to turn towards Jesus if you're in a state of mortal sin. So um, rather, drinking, drinking the Eucharist, receiving the Eucharist while in a state of mortal sin, an unrepentant mortal sin, uh, is, uh, is a mortal sin in and of itself, and it endangers your soul even more. So of course, you don't have to be perfect to go to communion. None of us would ever receive communion if you had to be perfect. And our bishops don't demand perfection uh, before receiving communion. What they demand is, um, is intention. They demand that we intend to be united with Christ. They demand contrition for our sins. And of course, you can't intend to be united with Christ without contrition for sins. So the first presupposes the former, or the second. Um, but in the case of Nancy Pelosi, that's not where she is. I applaud Archbishop Cordelione for this decision. I think um, more bishops should do this type of thing. 
I think we often end up steering clear of abortion because we think of it as a so-called political issue. It's not a political issue, or, or, or it is a political issue. I mean, everything is a political issue in, in, the, in the political, in the classic sense of the, the word political. Everything that we talk about has to do with our life together, so everything is a political issue. But this is not a partisan issue, right? I think we often think of this as a partisan issue. We're not going to talk about abortion because this is partisan. We don't want to get into Republican versus Democrat, et cetera. There are pro-life Democrats. There, there are vanishingly few of them these days, but they are there. And there are also pro-choice Republicans. So this is a, a issue that pretty neatly, uh, pretty neatly aligns with partisan divides, but does not exclusively align with partisan divides. But even more so, uh, we can't pretend it's a partisan issue because then it creates it, it, it creates a separate area of discussion for this. And we can't talk about this without without engaging in what we would consider to be a political or a partisan fight. But we need to talk about abortion because abortion matters so much. I mean, imagine being in a country where you were under the impression that slavery was a partisan issue and you were afraid of talking about slavery because you didn't want to get political. That's an absurd notion to think about, right? That you would say, I'm not going to mention this. I don't want to get political, but I don't think people should be enslaved because of the color of their skin. That's not a, that's not a, you know, that's not a weird partisan talking point. That's actually a core truth that goes right to the heart of our human dignity, that all of us are equal before God. And same with abortion. This is not some weird partisan thing that we don't want to get dragged into discussion about at the dinner table. This is actually something we should be proclaiming from the rooftops because it matters so very much. So yeah, don't be afraid to talk about this. I think there are a lot of pro-life people out there. And if more people had the courage to say that, uh, we would know that. Take, for example, the state senator. He toes the party line in the state of Illinois as a Democrat because he thinks he needs to toe the party line. He tells me personally, I am against abortion and I think abortion is wrong. Well, that's a problem, dude. If you really think abortion is wrong, you need to be actually owning that opinion and proclaiming it. And I guarantee you there are a ton of people like him uh, who think exactly the same thing, but have come to this wishy-washy position that you're not going to wade into the politics of it all and you're just going to support a woman's right to choose. So anyway, I applaud Archbishop Cordiglione for his decisive action. I applaud him for his um, pastoral action. I applaud him for trying to engage with Nancy Pelosi privately over the years to get her to change her mind on this. And I applaud him uh, intervening now before she can cause more scandal to, uh, to the rest of the faithful in the Archdiocese of San Francisco. With that, I'll wrap up this discussion. Really appreciate your uh, your ears as always. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creedle. Got a couple of great episodes coming up over the next couple of weeks. Check out um, Newman Nahas on Twitter. He's joining me to talk about um, COVID restrictions and COVIDianism as the new religion. It's going to be a great conversation. Uh, and then uh, Nathan Crankfield, my friend Nathan Crankfield, has a, a podcast called Seeking Excellence. You can check that out as well while you're waiting. But uh, I'm going to air an interview with him as well. I think it'll be actually a two-parter, part one on my feed, part two on his, or vice versa. We're still figuring out exactly how we're going to do that. But uh, those two guys are coming up pretty soon, and I'm uh, really excited to bring those to you as well. Would love to hear your thoughts on this podcast. Uh, let me know what I missed. Let me know what I got wrong or what you think I got wrong. Zach, Z-A-C, at creedlepodcast.com. Always love the feedback, even if it's negative. Uh, love to engage with with listeners on things. It's, it's how we come to a better understanding of each other and uh, certainly how we how we come to a better understanding of the truth. Uh, I never, ever want to sound like I think I have a monopoly on the truth. I know that I don't. I get a ton of things wrong. And whenever I do, I want to get corrected. I want to be corrected on them so that I can find the truth. Because ultimately, that is what uh, that is what I want to do. I want to only believe true things. And I want to always pursue truth, goodness, and beauty. So uh, help me. Help me find those things. Join me on the journey. 
And once again, Zach, Z-A-C, Credo Podcast.com. Until next time, God bless you.